The Way Out Podcast, episode 146. Reminding a person who who might be listening to this podcast who, who hasn't really reached out for help and, and they're kind of, you know, on the fence about what do I do, what do I do, and feeling so uncomfortable about how do I ask for help here, just really and truly understanding no one walks into, you know, the rooms of a 12-step program or again into a therapist because their life is going well. We've all we've all been there and and we're here to help. So so there was just this very mixed messages in my life about who am I? What am I? Where do I fit in? And especially with the financial aspect with my dad, you know, talking about money. I, I've always had this weird relationship with money because my dad would say, you know, you know, why doesn't your mom have this? And why don't you have that? And why is your house always in disarray? I didn't feel worthy of money because it wasn't being shared. There was just always, there was this discussion about it. And, um, you know, so that's that's been a huge thing of what is my worth? And then of course, un, you know, believing because that was, you know, forced on me, that message was forced on me as a child of like, you are not worthy of anything greater. I think the best way I put it is there was always this feeling of, of impending doom, like something, everyone is going to leave me if right. I'm not perfect. The thing that was great for me is finding some of that unconditional love. Right. I knew it was like, I think intellectually, I knew it was there, but it was so difficult for me to truly believe and trust people. Like you just said, becoming vulnerable. I didn't know how to express. I am so fearful of the world. I think you, you your actions are showing me that you love me, but I don't believe it. Um, because I had never felt that before. I had never truly internalized any of that before. So it was still figuring out what does love look like? What does friendship look like? What is what is vulnerability? What, what It's like knowing the words, but not knowing what they mean. And even if I know the definition, how do we internalize that? So I really battled with that. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 
1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week we have two firsts in the history of The Way Out Podcast. Co-host Jason did his first ever solo interview with first-time guest Casey Ryan. Casey relates her journey to long-term recovery with an easy transparency and brings forth a near-endless supply of spiritual truth and recovery wisdom along the way. Casey grew up torn between two worlds, leaving her doubting her own self-worth before finding herself in the throes of alcoholism and addiction. Her story will have you alternately relating, laughing, and ultimately leaving you inspired to take more meaningfully positive risks in your own recovery journey. I just have to say, this quite likely isn't the last time you're going to hear from this absolute dynamo of a woman on this podcast. Now, without further ado, here's Jason's interview with Casey Ryan. Listen up. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Way Up Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Casey Ryan. Say hello to the audience. Hello, everyone. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I, I got to tell you, this is my first solo interview ever. Never done this by myself. So I was kind of shocked. He just sprung it on me yesterday. And I was like, <laughs> he's like, you think you can do this? And I'm like, uh, and then I'm like, wait, yeah, yeah, I know I can do it. You know, it's kind of funny, though. Like, I know when, when I got the email, I was like, <laughs> okay. I think I even started type like replying in the emails, like, it'll be different to not hear your voice, Charlie, but, but okay, sure. Let's do this. So I, I yeah. feel honored to have you to have a, uh, this is your first solo podcast. Yeah. Thank you. You're popping my cherry. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so Casey, let's, let's, before we dig into, cause I really love the, the direction that your message is going to go with this. Uh, but before we get into the, you know, the solution and the, the possibilities. Let's learn a little bit about your, you know, life, like growing up, family of origin stuff and take it from there. Yeah, family of origin. I mean, I always like to say, you know, I'm in long-term recovery. And, uh, you know, what my first message is, is that, you know, I don't think anyone walks into the room somewhere or walks into a therapist or walks into any sort of you know, helpful environment because their life is going well, you know, something, something is going on. So it's always like, first and foremost, to someone that might be suffering is, you know, feeling like that outsider. And I know I always felt like an outsider my entire life, and, you know, and thinking of that moment of desperation, where you decide to ask for help and say, Oh, my gosh, this is so uncomfortable. You know, no one understands what I'm going through. You know, first and foremost, it's understanding that everyone is at that moment. You know, no one walks into a room full of strangers and asks for help because their life is going well. And, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, as someone in long-term recovery, always remembering that in my mind, that there is a person that is suffering. They could have been suffering for years, you know, since childhood, basically. 
mm-hmm. and it's such an uncomfortable situation. So reminding a person who, who might be listening to this podcast, who, who hasn't really reached out for help and, and they're kind of, you know, on the fence about what do I do? What do I do? And feeling so uncomfortable about how do I ask for help here? Just really and truly understanding no one walks into, you know, the rooms of a 12 step program or again into a therapist because their life is going well. We've all, we've all been there and, and we're here to help. So, you know, with that being said, you know, going, like I just, you know, like I just mentioned, it's like my, my life was, I didn't have a, a horrible childhood. You know, I don't have this like traumatic, traumatic story of, of abuse or anything like that. But at the same time, I don't think my life was as great as a lot of people had it. I grew up in, you know, the easiest way I'd like to put it is I grew up in poverty and I grew up in, in very conflicted households. My parents were separated from when I was four months old. And uh, with my mom living at my mom's house, we grew up in poverty. My dad, my dad had money and he, he wasn't wealthy by any means, but he, you know, he lived a comfortable life and, uh, and he didn't want to share that. And then coming from a Catholic upbringing too, on my mom's side, my grandmother paid for my brother and I to go to Catholic school. So it was like having these three different lives that I didn't understand living in a house where you know, the lights were being shut off because my mom couldn't pay the electricity, um, moving a lot because we couldn't afford it. And then on the weekends, going to my dad's house where we lived in a nice house, we had property, we would go on vacations. And then him complaining about, uh, you know, money to my mom, not literally not understanding why she couldn't get her life together and her finances in order when she didn't finish college because she was raising two children because my dad left her you know, trying to feed and house, you know, two other bodies besides herself. You know, my dad didn't understand that. And he would complain to my brother and I about this and not, you know, not express that to my mom. And then going to this Catholic school where we didn't live, um, we didn't live in that district, basically. Well, my mom would take us to school every day, and then someone would carpool us home. And seeing these kids who, who, uh, you know, their, their families were, they, they, again, they, they weren't wealthy, but, you know, they were middle class or upper, upper middle class. Their parents weren't divorced. They lived in the same area, so they were able to hang out after school. So there was just this very mixed messages in my life about who am I? What am I? Where do I fit in? And especially with the financial aspect, with my dad you know, talking about money, I, I've always had this weird relationship with money because my dad would say, you know, you know, why doesn't your mom have this? And why don't you have that? And why is your house always in disarray? I didn't feel worthy of money because it wasn't being shared. There was just always, there was this discussion about it. And, um, you know, so that's, that's been a huge thing of what is my worth? And then of course, you know, believing because that was, you know, forced on me, that message was forced on me as a child of like, you are not worthy of anything greater and, you know, children are impressionable. So that's one thing in my life that I am like a victim of. So it, it led to these beliefs in, in, you know, in my head that, you know, I'm not worthy of anything. I can't do anything right. You know, you're not, you're not capable of, of making money. You're not worthy of making money. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then like from that, you know, with, with going to a school where I didn't, ha- you know, I didn't live around children you know, peers my age, and then just going home and kind of sitting in front of the TV with my brother and getting messages about life. What does life look like from, 
you know, what's projected on television. And I was able to kind of, you know, build my own reality of what is, what is expected almost. And I, I don't think that's, you know, that uncommon. Um, right. It's just kind of how it, you know, it's kind of how it is. And, and living in this almost just fantasy land and con- conflicted of who am I, what am I, who, who do I want to be sort of thing. And right. just always, there was just, the, I think the best way I put it is there was always this feeling of, of impending doom. Like something, everyone is going to leave me if right. I'm not perfect. And I will say that when I, later on in life, I was, I was seeing a therapist and she wrapped it up perfectly. She just said, you know, you're a product of emotional neglect. You know, yeah. I was emotionally neglected as a child. Um, my mother was very depressed because of, you know, the financial issues and being left and raising two children. So she was just quiet most of the time. We just sat in front of the TV. Um, you know, she, she cooked for us, but a lot of times we just went out to eat fast food because she didn't have the energy. Right. And then when I would get to my dad's, my dad was this kind of loud, scary man to me. And I was so fearful of him so, so fearful of him. And he's still kind of that way. But now that I'm older, I can stand up to him. Um, <laughs> you know, and then when it came to being at school, it was, I never, I never learned that I had a voice. It is, I just always remember being this scared child and thinking everyone, if I'm not perfect, everyone is going to leave me. And I felt this burden of, of, of just being perfect. What, what does everyone else want me to be? And right. You know, some people, some people might say, well, hey, that's, that's selfishness. The world doesn't revolve around you. But we're not talking about an adult mentality. We're talking about, you know, a five-year-old child who is coming into their own and building their own reality. Right. Um, and, and that's just, that's human. You know, that's just, that's just human yeah. nature, basically. You're seeking acceptance, so, seeking validation. Yeah. And you think that you're going to achieve it through some kind of performance, but you have three conflicting, very contrast lifestyles going on that, I mean, you're getting mixed messages, you know, about what you're supposed to be. Yeah. And, you know, so from that, I, you know, I remember as a kid, I, I liked to, to be alone and kind of wander off and, and create little, you know, fantasy lands and everything else. And like, I, I you know, I was one of those kids, like you gave me the option, like I'm going to wander the streets basically Mm-hmm. you know, by myself, right. um, you know, you put me into the woods and it's like, you know, create like a Disney fantasy in my head and, and this imagination. And, and that was empowering to me to almost be by myself and, and create that little reality. And then you put me in front of peers or in front of adults. And I just would like shut down with absolute anxiety. Right. And, um, <laughs> you know, by the time I was, I was about like eight or nine. I mean, I became, I, you know, started like dabbling and cutting a little bit, um, you know, suicidal thoughts, truly believing that I was the problem. You know, I was the cause of my parents' divorce. Again, I was four months old. I had nothing to do with that, but not being taught any differently or having that interaction with my mom. Um, I was never engaged in sports because I was too fearful of failing and being made fun of. Um, I, I always remember thinking like, oh, you know, I, I want to see myself on the basketball team. I always wanted to partake in sports, right? but I was too scared when the ball would come like, you know, flying at my face. It was like, oh, it's, it's going to hit me. It's going to hit me. It's going to hit me. 
And then I would just like shut my eyes and sure enough, what happens? Like the ball goes flying right past me. And then I would just say to myself, see, you failed. See what happens. Uh, you're not, you know, you're not good enough. It was always setting myself up for failure. And, so there's uh, some perfectionism and, in there. Some, some oh, un unrealistic <laughs> expectations of self going on early. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, always, always wanting to be the best. <laughs> but now you're, you have a voice and you found it and you're, you're choosing to, you, you know, use it today. And I can't be more grateful for, for that, you know, that you're here to share your story with us because I love hearing about miracles, man. Like these walking, talking miracles that surround me in my daily life today. It's like <laughs> kind of different from, you know, the life that I came from too. So, so that sounds like a very confusing time for you and like what, what, how did this all transpire? Like, what did you, did you end up finding kind of like a purpose for yourself or was it just like, you know, you, you ended up finding drugs and then it was like, Oh, my solution. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? No, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I ended up finding uh, some drugs and some drugs and alcohol and, um, you know, like I said, for, for being like eight or eight or nine and, and having these, these suicidal thoughts and, and cutting and stuff and, and just wanting to escape and being very dark and depressed, um, we had moved again. And then I remember telling my mom in fifth grade, I said, you know, I, I don't want to go to Catholic school anymore. I, I want to go to the public school. And oh. so I'd started, I'd started going to public school and that obviously you're in a school that's, I don't even know how many times the size of a, of a private school. And then obviously I was around uh, peers that lived in my neighborhood right? and, you know, just from, you know, from hanging out with them and that thing of always wanting to fit in. And uh, one of my girlfriends that lived a couple doors down, she had an older brother who, you know, was in the drug scene and stuff. And, and I was 11 and I, I will say this. I, I knew the, the effects of alcohol. I was always turned on by the effects of alcohol. I was always intrigued by it. My mom didn't drink. My dad did. Um, not heavily, but when he did drink, like he drank. Right. You know, I, I would say I, I probably, I didn't see my dad drink often, but when he drank, you know, he, 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 li he liked to let loose. And, and that intrigued me because I saw my dad in a different light. He yeah. would just, you know, his tongue would get looser. Uh, you know, the, the party had always started, you know, when we'd have barbecues and stuff at my dad's house during the summer and the pool. And I remember that's, you know, that's when alcohol came out. And there was a change in the way that people spoke and the way that they acted. And I wanted that. And my dad, my dad gave us alcohol. You know, it wasn't, I didn't drink for the first time when I was 11. I, you know, my dad gave us alcohol. He'd let us sip on it. And I always remember thinking, I want that. But then at the same time, I also, uh, he's passed away, but I had an uncle that was blind and paraplegic from alcoholism. He drank himself wow. into, a, he drank himself into a coma <clears throat> and, um, and he woke up blind and, and, uh, and paraplegic. He didn't have the use of his legs. Holy I had an, yeah, um, I had an aunt who was an alcoholic and a drug addict who since passed away. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was, uh, naive to the effects of, of alcohol or the consequences, right? The, yeah. Yeah. The, the consequences of, of alcoholism, you know, of heavy drinking and, you know, even seeing that, but 
we don't no I don't think anyone thinks when they pick up their you know their first real drink their first drunk wow I'm I'm going to drink myself I think my uncle was 27 when that happened by the time I'm 27 God. I'm going to wake up in a coma and oh. and have you know no use of my legs and 100% blind you know no one, no insane. one thinks that but that is insane know. yeah yeah wow you know oh. and I can, I can say for him it was it was probably one of the better things that happened in his life because he was a raging alcoholic, abusive to my grandmother. And when he when that happened to him, he wasn't able to do it. And he actually found a purpose later on of helping people too. Really? And he was later on became inspirational to me of seeing how he uh, he was able to use his limited uh, senses basically to overcome a lot of things and he calmed down and he really got this was, you know decades ago and he got into computers and was able to be an IT guy and do all this crazy stuff and you know it, it didn't hold him back any longer so there is even with tragic things happening depending on our mindset there is always hope at the end of it so and amen, amen um so you know so after that it, you know my first real drunk I'd say I was 11 and it was with MGD forties party. <laughs> and, like, you know, like, wait, like, like Miller draft or like Michelob. Oh yeah. Miller no, no, no. Like, like Miller. Dude, yeah. that was my drink. That was my, <laughs> and, and I got to say this too. When you were, when I read your little bio, I started drinking and smoking weed when I was 11. I started shooting up when I was 13. So I immediately really um, connected with, your experience what little i knew because that's i mean a ripe young age right to be uh falling into these things so yeah we're gonna have i'm sure throughout the course of your story uh you know connection points we're going to connect on these levels because we have a very similar experience in certain yeah and even even like listening to you know listening to you sometimes i'm like you know i feel like i could relate to jason a little so I don't know. It was just one of those things when I, I did it, when I got the emails, like, I think I can relate to Jason just a little bit more on some of this stuff. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was just like, it was that, that thing of, you know, my first drunk was, was a blackout drunk, woke up in, you know, the friend's bedroom and not remembering anything that happened. And if, I think for some people that might scare them a little bit, might scare them off. I was one of those, like I had arrived, like, this is it the party was there. I felt like I fit in that feeling of impending doom was somewhat gone, gone. because I felt like I, I felt like I had found a tribe. Like I had found a, a purpose as, as sick as that might sound is, is that blackout in that party. Um, mm -hmm. What I had seen, what I, that reality that I had created in my life of wanting to be a part of something, you know, of, of this group of people that was lacking in my life, some sort of connection that happened when, when the party was there, when I got drunk and, and that's what I chased. So from there, it was, it was crazy. Uh, I went from like zero to 60 within, you know, overnight it was, you know, stealing from stealing from my mom, even though we didn't have money, you know, if it was 20 bucks here, always the drive was, you know, who's got the drugs, who's got the alcohol, you know, are you bringing 20 bucks to the party so we can get whatever? As long as you can contribute, you're good. You can be there. So my goal was always just how do I get to that point? Right. And 
I like to think that when it came to, to, I guess, drugs, and this is, this for me has been a, a big understanding. Drugs didn't necessarily numb me a lot of the times. It right. just gave me something else to focus on. Like mm-hmm. I said, you know, it was, how do I get money? Who's got the hookup? How many hours are you going to spend? You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. Like, no, how many page, hours are page, page. I had three of them. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> different, different ones for different business because my weed friend scoffed at the people that did powders, you know, and all that shit. So I'd have one silenced and yeah, I, I was like all trying to hide the little shifty deals I do. And no, and I, I can relate to that too. Like the, the pain never is gone, but the insecurity is never gone, but it just allows me that, that, uh, that experience of contentment, right? Like just to be able to be content or whatever, just for a little bit, just feel okay. You know? Well, it did. It it made, it made me feel like I had some sort of purpose. Like, Oh, I'm driven. I'm driven to do this. Like I don't have to focus on school because this is my focus right now. I don't have to focus on, you know, (laughs) what, what this person is saying on me because I'm, I'm laser focused on something else. And, you know, and I do think that alcohol, alcohol though, um, alcohol did that. It's like once, once the drink really, uh, you know, took effect, then it's kind of like, you know, blackout. And, and I loved blacking out because that's when oblivion comes. That's when that feeling, you know, that, that sense of impending doom, that's when it leaves. But then the issue with that is (laughs) I, or we are not, we're not coherent during that, you know, literally, you know, like it is like, I'm literally in a blackout. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm feeling for me though. And you just said it, when I was still, you know, whether it was high on weed, um, you know, heroin, all this other stuff, I still always had that, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? Who likes me? There was still just that gnawing anxiety constantly going. Whereas with once, again, once alcohol kicked in, I didn't have that. Right. Um, I I will say like, I I, I dabbled in some, you know, a decent amount of LSD at one point and having the anxiety that I have, I would always end up in a bad trip. Uh, right? Like there's certain people with personalities that should not dabble in like yeah. heavy, hardcore hallucinogens. Like, yeah. and, and I am one of those people because I freak out and I might run in front of a car because I don't know what I'm like feeling at that feeling or thinking at that moment. Absolutely. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty dangerous. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, to, I guess to, you know, to speed it up, it was, like I said, zero to 60. It was always just laser focused. You know, who's got this? How do we get money? Blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, so, but by the time I was 13, drinking alcoholically, if, if there were drugs around, I was doing them. Um, we had moved again. You know, I, I will say there's, there's those kind of uh, defining moments in, in our addiction and one of them for me was, I remember I was just kind of drinking and smoking weed. And one of my girlfriends had said, oh, you know, you know, this girl's name was Tiki. She's like, Tiki gets high by herself. Like that, you know, this just, you know, this just weird. Like who does that? And I wasn't telling any of my friends I was getting high by myself. You know, I'd buy something and, you know, go, go smoke in my room. But I remember when that girl said that to me, it was that, it was like I was punched in my stomach and it 
again, I felt different and I felt less than. Right. And, uh, and, and I thought it's sad too, when, when we can take something like that, which has absolutely nothing to do with us and we can make it about us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Personalize that personalize the shit out of that. And, uh, and let it be a shameful thing, you know? Um, but yet it doesn't stop us, does it? No. No, and it didn't. If anything, when we, when we hear stuff like that or we have little, like, uh, realizations about our own use, it only drives us farther. Oh, yeah, how do I escape? I know how, how to I, shut I'm that different. feeling off. I know how to shut that fucking feeling off right now, you know? <laughs> Just do more. <laughs> yeah. Right, and exactly like you said, it's, it's shutting off that feeling, that punch that, you know, that punch that I felt in my stomach, that guilt or shame or I'm different. I want to shut that feeling off. There wasn't the thing of, oh my gosh, maybe I better slow down here. That means consume more because I don't want to feel that, you know, that gut feeling in my stomach any longer. If it was, um, I probably would have been like instantly thought that chick was a bitch. You know, I would have gotten more, <laughs> more on the defensive side when I was younger. I was really like, this is me and this is who I am. And if you don't like it, eat a dick, get out of my face, you know, like, cause I'm a junkie and always going to be a junkie and that's it. You know, like me and this needle, we're married. And if you can't accept, we're a package deal. You know, if you can't accept the needle, then you can't be around me. And unfortunately nothing was sacred, you know, not kids, not relationships, not jobs, not school, not any of it, you know, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah, I mean, in those <laughs> in those situations, it's it's easy to it's easy to judge, you know, someone else. It's not easy to be understanding or compassionate, and and in that too, like trying to understand where where my friend was coming from. Either it could have I took it as she was judging her. She could have been saying it out of you know compassion, basically, like oh my god, right? Gosh, like there's there's something wrong with her, right? But That's I, what I, I mean, see it as, I, oh my, she's I, judging her. Yeah, when I would get the defensive nature going on and push people away and go on attack mode, it was those moments people were speaking, trying to speak life into me. You know, they're trying to love on me. But I didn't know that was what love was. I thought it was a personal attack, you know? Like, how dare you judge me? I'd start slinging mud, you know, throwing their fucking wrongdoings in their face and make them feel about this big, you know? And it's really sad that we, that's our lens that we look at life through at that time. We can't see that. We can't see that it's love. Man. Yeah. And you know, that's what it comes down to is just this survival mode of how do I, how do I just keep afloat a little bit? How do I keep the, the circle of friends that I have without completely drowning? And you know, a lot of it selfishly was keeping that circle of friends because it made me, they made me feel validated um, you know, and then how do I keep the real druggy friends? Because that's the hookup. And that's the, that's really, I think like the circle. And that was even, you know, uh, I was conflicted with that too. And it kind of goes in later once I started hanging out with junkies and stuff is that I didn't want to be a junkie. I didn't want to hang out with the junkie crew because I hadn't gotten that, <clears throat> that far into it that I didn't want to be with the nobodies. I still wanted to be with some of the people that were, you know, doing fairly well in life and fairly well <laughs> in school. Um, you eventually, to- eventually I'm sure all hope of that fucking went away. Um, oh yeah. So absolutely. let's reeling it back. How did you make this leap from, you know, I'm smoking weed and I'm drinking to getting into hard shit. I mean, how did that happen? 
Um, I mean, like I said, I was, I, I drank alcoholically by the time I was 13. I was kicked out of three schools. I mean, I would drink at school, oh, wow. uh, before, before school. I mean, when I say alcoholically, it was like, I woke up and, and I hit the bottle basically. Um, and, and then I was at, I was at a party one. So I, I, I was hanging out with junkies too. And, um, and I remember watching my friend Glenn, he was he was the best friends with my boyfriend who was who was a junkie and um and I remember watching Glenn shoot up and I was so disgusted by it and I'm like why 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 can't you just stop and he goes it's not that easy case and 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 I didn't get it you know I didn't see how my drinking was like that I saw him as doing something different and, and then in that and it, that's one of those moments I was saying it out of love and compassion for him because I saw him suffering. Right. He could have taken that as judgment. Right. So back to what we just said. Right. And, uh, and I had always promised myself from watching, from watching Glenn and, and the guy that I was dating and a couple other people in that circle, I will never do heroin. I thought it was just the most disgusting, just disgusting drug. Right. And, uh, and I was out at a, it was just strange the way it happened. You know, I'm out. Of, we never know what we're going to get ourselves into. I was I was right. out at a Friday. I was out at a Friday night warehouse party, and we were planning on going to a Saturday night warehouse party. So, what do you got to do? You got to save your money for the big party on on Saturday night. <laughs> and um, and some and I was 15 at the time, and a guy came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, you want to you want to do a do a bump or whatever?" And I said, "Well, of course, if you're if you're offering something free, of course." And, and I thought I was doing coke and it turned out, you know, right away when I did it, that the burn, and I thought, my God, what have I just done? And it was, you know, instantly. And, and I went to my, to my best friend, we, I found her in the party and she could tell, she, she just, she looked at me and said, what did you do? You know, what did you do? Because I'm nodding out right away and falling all over the place. And, you know, I, I think in hindsight, it's kind of scary that, um, you know, that, that first one could have been the last one too. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. You don't know the strength. You don't know anything else. I'm, I'm in a massive warehouse of right. people doing God only knows what. And the first one could have been the last one. And she, again, she could tell instantly I had done something. She's well, it's like, a good thing. That, it's a good thing that you got dosed out and that you didn't like yeah. dose, dose yourself. Yeah, and I think you know back then it might it's it wasn't cut the way that it is now too. But that um, oh my god, yeah, my god, I know I'm losing I so like, many god, fucking losing so many fucking friends of that shit. Yeah, it's like thank it's, god I got sober when I did. And now um, they're putting it in the meth and in the and in the coke and everything. Like they're cutting everything with fentanyl now. Fake, they're making fake pills like fake Zannies and all sorts of shit like that, like fake perks that are cut with fentanyl. Like it's okay. everywhere. The shit is everywhere. They just stop making it. <clears throat> um, but so yeah. So I mean, from like there, I, I won't even go into the details of it. And I think most people, you know, listening can understand. Anyone that's been there can understand it. And it was just like alcohol. It was from zero to sixty. Right. And you know, telling my friend, like, you know, I remember my friend Izzy saying, you know what? Well, if you did it, because we had promised each other that we'd never do it. Well, if you did it, then I want to do it. Uh, and that took off, um, and I, you know, like I said, I, I had connections, um, you know, yeah. who were in that scene. And it was from doing that first bump to within two weeks, you know, I'm shooting $100 a day. 
and uh, yeah, I want to say it, it happens quick, you know, from, you know, from boosting and, and selling stuff. Um, that's pretty much how we got our money. And, and I remember saying to my mom, my mom could tell that I wasn't drinking. And, and I actually said to my mom, you know, mom, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking anymore. Like all um, proud of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like all, like all proud of myself that, yeah. I, that I wasn't drinking anymore. And, well, and of course, you know, in your mind, uh, you're thinking life's taken on this great new direction, right? Like it, we don't get addicted because the shit sucks, you know? <laughs> It's amazing in the beginning. And, uh, you know, it's weird. I wanted to interject for a second because you said the, you said the name Glenn, right? And in, in direct accordance with like when, how you got started, it's really weird, man. Cause like, I, that's how I, my first time ever sticking a needle in my arm, I ran away from home. I'm not going to get to, wordy about it but I ended up in Minneapolis and I met a guy I was by myself on the streets I was 13 and he was like where's your parents he brought me to this house and I watched him and a bunch of people shooting up for like hours and then I just was like let me get some of that they're like you don't want none of this kid and I'm like yeah I do it all the time I was totally full of shit they threw me they threw the stuff to me and I just did what I sat there forever and watched them do and at first try first strike you know threw up I didn't snort it you know obviously I shot it up but it was it was weird when you said Glenn and we're talking about that it was like flashbacks dude I decided I wanted to share that with you that's a really a trip but that dude ended up killing himself I found him um dead and it, it it's just crazy the the stuff that we end up experiencing, but yeah, this is not my story. It's your story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that just was weird. Kind of, like kind of thing. I was like, I gotta say something. No, and you know, sometimes it is like important to, you know, to share some of those, like our story and those, those maybe not like a terrible war story, but reminding ourselves because that can trigger something in someone else, right. you know, and it's kind of like the whole point of, like doing these podcasts too, where yeah. it's, you know, having that relationship and that understanding of like, man, like even just somebody saying a name can trigger a thought. And then, like you said, like the situations that we put ourselves into, um, you know, for me, mine like spirals out of control years later. Um, I will say like with that, it was, I ended up going into, I was, I was on probation for a battery charge and, uh, and I could not, you know, drop clean for the life of me. And, um, how old were you I, when this, when this, uh, happened? I was 15, I was 16, I believe when I went into treatment and you caught this charge, time. you caught this charge when you were dope seeking trying to get money. Uh, no, I mean, I think I caught that charge almost when I was just drinking. I, I was, I had, they gave me a little bit of time on that. Cause I want to say I was a, I was a freshman. I was a freshman in high school when I caught that charge and I ended up getting sober at that time when I was 16. So there was maybe about a year in between. So I think I was just drinking when that happened. I don't even think I was doing dope. And then, you know, I, I couldn't stop drinking. And then being on probation, I was like, I couldn't drop clean because who's, who's going to stop shooting dope, right? Like you it's just, hard. it doesn't happen. Right. Um, so they, they, they ended up sending me to treatment and being the, and I was, I, to be quite honest, I was ready to stop at that point, you know, after doing dope for, I don't know, it was maybe six to eight months. I mean, I had abscesses on my arm. I couldn't move. Uh, 
I couldn't, I could hardly move my right arm because it was just so infected and disgusting. Um, mm. And, and it was like, I was ready. Yeah, I was ready to quit. So they, they send me to treatment and being the perfectionist that I am, I excelled in treatment, right? You told me to do this. You give me, you give me structure. And that's part, you know, another thing is like addicts do well with structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't realize that when we get sober, it's like, I don't want to do that. And I don't, I don't want somebody telling me to do this. Right. Living that structured lifestyle. It's why, you know, treatment is great. Halfway homes, you know, three quarter homes, having those set meetings that you go to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a commitment for me. And I think for a lot of other people, it's what we actually need because we are so used to being unstructured and not knowing what to do with that time. Right. And then doing whatever we want, that becomes habit and that lifestyle that we talk about that sometimes it's not even about the drugs and alcohol. It's just living that lifestyle of no responsibility. Yeah. Um, that in itself becomes an addiction and says, you can do whatever the F you want, right? right. Uh, you can't tell me nothing. You can swear. Um, so right. for me, I, ex- <laughs> okay, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've been holding back. Um, oh, geez. Yeah, yeah, don't by all means. You know, do it, do whatever the fuck. You see, once I start swearing, then it's on a different side of me comes out. Um, that's what so, that's what we're looking for, man. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I excelled in treatment, and and then when I got out, I I ended up going to and the girl that I the girl that I was shooting dope with, um, she had gotten into treatment at the same time. She had gotten out a couple weeks before me. And, um, still though, I will say when I was in treatment, I think it was, you know, for me, it might've been a little bit different because I was so young and not having those, you know, coping skills or emotional skills from my upbringing. I just, you, you tell me to do something, do it all I want to make happy. Of course, I want to make all the girls in the treatment center happy. I want them to like me, but I still had that mentality of like, you don't know me. You don't know the emotional pain that I'm going through. And in that treatment center, it was in downstate Illinois, but you still had a, quite a few girls from Chicago too, like some, some fairly gangster girls in there too. Yeah. Um, but it was just this thing of like, you don't understand the emotional pain that I'm going through. I owe you nothing. So all I wanted to do was like be the best for, for the right. treatment facility. And that's, it's why I excelled. Um, you weren't, you weren't embracing I, certain key elements of what makes it possible for us to recover, like vulnerability, accountability, you right. know, being authentic and, 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 you know, letting yourself be seen so that people can be of service to you. You just wanted to be a fucking guru, you know? Right. That's, yeah. that is so spot on. It's not even funny. Oh, I, so spot on. I may have done the same thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the first time I went to treatment, so <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, I can yeah. really, let me articulate this for oh, wait, you. Now, this I'm uh-huh. assuming if I if I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that things didn't end up quite well because of this treatment stance. <laughs> no, um, you know what? I I I got I I went into a twelve step program. Got uh, you know. It, did fairly well in that hung out, you know, I was young. I mean, you know, we went to conferences, conventions. It was, you know, every night was a meeting and hanging out and doing, you know, doing what you do. And the thing that was great for me is finding some of that unconditional love. Right. I knew it was like, I think intellectually, I knew it was there, 
but it was so difficult for me to truly believe and trust people. Like you just said, becoming vulnerable. I didn't know how to express. I am so fearful of the world. I think you, you, your actions are showing me that you love me, but I don't believe it. Um, because I had never felt that before. I had never truly internalized any of that before. So it was still figuring out what does love look like? What does friendship look like? What is, what is vulnerability? What, what, it's like knowing the words, but not knowing what they mean. And even if I know the definition, how do we internalize that? So I really battled with that. And um, so I ended up, I, I got into a relationship, you know, I, it's always funny to say that. Like I got into a relationship and, and that, and then I met a guy <laughs> and then I met a guy. Um, and then that became my focus. Was and he like a treatment I, guy? Was he like a guy you met at a meeting type thing? Yeah. Yeah. He was a guy that I met at a meeting, you know, of course, like my type of guy with like full sleeve tattoos and, and junkie and, you yeah. know, the type of guy that you want to bring home to mom. Um, well, and we, and we, yeah. We t- we talk about such even even when we're holding back like you're you're just talking about you know we're we're not really being full on authentic and vulnerable we're we're holding back but we're still sharing some some shit that's like way deeper than anything we ever did when we're out there so yeah I mean these these connections we make in the rooms are like fucking they they come on hard and strong and fast because we're connecting on deep levels. Yeah. So yeah, and it's 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 having that circle of you know the circle of friends too, and then finding that one person who you want to express everything to, and I think that's the thing with relationships. You know, for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, again, it's it's difficult to get really vulnerable in in front of someone that you're not having that intimate like sexual relationship with, and then once you cross that line, it's like okay, here, let me vomit all of my stuff on you. Let me be real with you and show you and be comfortable with you. And then having that attachment to the person and finding mm-hmm. that one person who, who I believe understands me and loves me unconditionally and that I can be vulnerable and be myself in front of. And it's like, okay, now that's my addiction. Now that yep. person is my addiction because I feel or I believe that that person understands me. Now let me forget about everything else because they don't understand me. They don't know me like this person does. So that's why it's, you know, in recovery, those relationships become, you know, the the codependent toxic relationships that they are. You can't put your recovery and have it be dependent on any person, place, or thing. Nobody should be up on a pedestal because if you put somebody on a pedestal, they'll piss all over you. You know, they're going (laughs) to let you down. Yeah. Um, Feel, you know, free, so, feel free to use that one with your friends anytime. <laughs> I love that line, dude. <laughs> I've, I've never heard that one, and now I'm going to. Um, oh, yeah. oh I'll, I'll get on it. I could get on a high horse about putting people on a pedestal. Oh my gosh. Um, so, yeah, I'm in this. I'm in this relationship. We end up. It does not. You know, he becomes like the higher power sort of thing, and and I start going crazy. And it wasn't. You know, that anything was bad. I'm working a job. I'm going to meetings. I'm doing all this stuff. You know, like I said, we're we're having fun. And I was kind of put on that pedestal, to be honest. Um, you know, you show up, look happy. As long as I was one of those. As long as I act as if everything's okay. As long as you think that I'm great on the outside, everything's okay. But not 
feeling that about myself. You're um, robbing yourself, really. You're, right. You know, it, you know it, it's still the battle of how come when I'm at home, and I struggle with this today, how come when I'm at home by myself, I feel one way, and then I show up to the, the world the rest of, you know, a different time, you know, a different way. And it's things that I do, um, you know, when I coach myself or, you know, kind of take all of this, you know, in, into account. You know, I could do a writing of, you know, how do I show up to the world? Why is that different? You know, if, if I were to show up to the world um, or if I were to feel the same way right now as I do when I show up to the world, what would that look like? And it's like, my God, that is actually me. Um, yeah. But, you know, but left to my own devices and when I'm by myself, how come I feel different? But, you know, looking at those two worlds of, um, you know, and, and just really doing a bunch of exercises, you know, with myself, a lot of them are writing exercises or like meditating. Um, what does that look like? Why do I feel so conflicted? But, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's stuff that I do now. Um, so, so like, you know, to fast, to fast forward. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say like, so obviously this, this ends up falling apart. You can already see it coming, <laughs> you know, um, where <laughs> we know the end of the movie. How, how long was that stint of recovery for you? And what happens? Now? Uh, it was two years. Two years. Well, how old were you? Um, 16, right? Six, yeah, 16 to 18. I ended up relapsing when I was 18. And um, it was, so it was one, one fateful day. I was literally driving to look for a new car. I was driving from the suburbs into the city. And I was literally, I mean, everything was going great. I was looking for a new car. I was looking for a brand new 2002 Trans Am. Um, that's what I, that's what I wanted. Right? Badass. So you had a that's pocket full wanted. of cash and you're driving into the I city. did. I was, I was living at my mom's. I was working a job. I had a pocket full of cash and, and, and I was and ready to spend it. Feeling good. Yeah. yeah. Feeling good. And, uh, and I was driving out. We have a, a stretch of highway here in Chicago. It's known as the heroin, <clears throat> heroin highway because mm. it goes through the West side, which is a lot of, um, it's, you know, where a lot of the dope dealers are and it's where kids from the suburbs will go to, right. to cop. And, and I was driving out on that, like legitimately going home. It's how I'd go home. And I thought to myself, I can get high just once and no one will know. Damn. And I think I bought two bags, you know, I knew where to go. I bought two bags and that one day turned <laughs> I'm gonna, into I'm gonna get high <laughs> just once, but I need two bags. <laughs> <laughs> it's total addict thinking. I'm gonna get high once, but I need two bags. <laughs> you know, there's, there's I gotta get good <laughs> Sorry. And you know, I I never thought of it that way. I'm gonna use that one too. Hell you yeah. know, it, it, that one day turned into a four year relapse of, of scumminess, right? Absolute scumminess. Um, you know, living here in Chicago, you know, we have neighborhoods that aren't the best. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, you know, you get, you have some pretty bad stories that you'll hear in meetings. And I always remember thinking like, well, God, that never happened to me. You know, thank God that never happened to me sort of thing on my four year relapse some of those worst stories that I had heard in meetings ended up happening to me. Well, do you ever hear in the meetings when they say somebody will cut you off when you start talking like that? And they'll say yet. Yeah. They'll always add the yet. I have a long list of yet and it's going to get shorter if I go back out, you know, 
and it, you, you know, like you said earlier, we never know what we're going to get ourselves into. Don't ever think that there's any point of demoralization that you can't go past, you know, like you can and probably will continue to deteriorate, right? Like that's what we do when we're using, we just get worse. It doesn't get better. It picks up where it left off. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's like, who, yeah. it. I, I don't know many people that like socially use heroin. Um, Fuck no. It just, it's, it doesn't Dude, happen. It's, it's, it's not like going out and like, Oh, I smoke a cigarette when, when I'm out at the bar, you know, with friends drinking, it's like, right. you know, nobody's doing bumps of dope. Dude, heroin, know, in heroin the bathroom. is like an acid trip. You get your supplies together. You need to, you need to be prepared for the ride. Right. Cause I'm about <laughs> to go on a trip right here like i remember doing that with anything you know if, especially like coke heroin uh you know hallucinogens i had to make sure i had my supplies in order i'd have to make a store run first and i'd make sure i got the right beverages that i like when i'm on the shit and like the the right snacks that i can maybe eat if i if i eat you know and all that kind of shit candles i, I was a candle guy you know all, all this stuff, my ashtrays, clean my ashtrays out, you know, so I'm ready to fucking fill them up. Bad news bears, man. Right. Um, you know, it, it was actually like Father's Day of, of this year. I was driving out with my brothers to go see my brother and my dad. And, you know, on that relapse, it was, uh, I, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, I, I used by myself, I used heavy I used the harder drugs by myself. I hung around, strangely enough. Um, I never wanted to be around junkies. It was this thing of, if I don't hang around with junkies, then I'm not that bad. It was, yeah. you know, hanging around with Chicago police officers and firefighters, doctors. Um, really? You know, higher up. I know that you were high? Uh, some of them did. Some of them didn't. You know, the in front of, like, the, the officers, like, usually I would just drink and kind of hold back on some of that stuff. Um Try to but, appear normal. Yeah, exactly. Try to appear normal. Um, always wear long sleeves, even in, you know, when it's heat index of like 102, you know, wearing the long sleeves. Um, keeping, keeping that appearance as if and somehow telling myself, one day this is going to stop. One day this is going to stop. And never making a plan of how. Just believing. It's, you know, we'd say it in meetings, like, waiting for the knight in shining armor to come up and save me. I always waited for that. And the right. strange thing about it was, you know, I had a bunch of knights in shining armor, whether that was the people that I was around, you know, the friends I come from, I do, I come from a very, uh, my extended family is extremely loving and would have done anything. Um, right. You know, my mom was a huge enabler and it doesn't mean that she didn't love me because no. she gave me money for drugs and, and she would, take me to go get drugs sometimes she did that because she wanted to know that i was safe she you know i to be sick either you know that's a help us yeah you know when, the, when yeah it, your loved one dope sick a lot of parents fall into that trap especially with heroin yeah and just you know for me too being like a young you know white female going into the ghetto of chicago it was like she wanted to know that i was safe and she felt that she just as much as i have control issues like she had that control issue. She just had a different way of showing it and mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, the situations that I even put my mom in, um, you know, emotionally and, you know, physical harm too sometimes. And it's not right. to say that it happened every day, but, you know, if it came down to it, like it, you know, it would, you know, she would do it. She would 
take me as far as she could and say, she just believed as long as she knew where I was, then there, she had some sort of control and she felt that I was safe. Right. And, uh, so how, you know, are you, how are you funding your habit if you were using a loan and you really disconnected from the street people that, you know, the junkies and stuff that you were doing before? What, how, how are you funding that? At this uh, there, there was, you know, there was a lot of boosting. There was, you know, if, if we're out at, you know, at a bar or something, it's like, you know, getting, you know, 20 bucks. I was dating someone at the time who was fairly had some money and, and would help supply the habit. Um, like in full knowing that. Oh, in, in full knowing, in full okay. knowing. And that's kind of why I say too, like having that night in shining armor. And it's like, in, in hindsight, I'm like, that guy could have paid for a that guy could have paid for a college education. He could, and, but he could have paid for your overdose, you know, too. Yeah, he could have paid for the over. I love the way that you say overdose with your with your accents. Is um, it, do I have an accent? <laughs> you do. You're like overdose. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I do not sound like the people from the Fargo movie. <laughs> well, to you know, to me, you do. Maybe to other listeners, that's hilarious. You do. I guess I, uh, I don't hear it, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, when I, when I listen, when I listen to you guys, it's always like picking up on those little things too. I'm like, oh, it's so funny. To you, know, to me, it's not as bad as Fargo, but I pick oh, up on some of it, and it's definitely there. I think that uh, Charles is funny because we've had people ask so many times about his accent because he speaks just different than anybody I've ever met. I don't think anybody talks like Charles. I swear. He's got his own way to talk. Like <laughs> it's weird as shit. Uh, I love that guy. Uh, well, you know what? We need to get you on here more. We need to do more solo podcasts with you. I think he, he said, if this one goes good, maybe we'll start, uh, rotating the interviews or something i i was just like i said i was flabbergasted yesterday when he asked me to do it i went did he just did you just i called him up I'm like are you serious and he's like yeah man you know he said it was an hp thing for him it just kind of slapped him upside the head and said you don't have to do everything man and and i was like absolutely i'm down to jump in and help any way shape or form i can with the podcast this this has been a huge blessing to me and my recovery to be able to be a part of it and i learned so much from from the shows and the guest hosts and the, the callers i wish people would call more but you know what i mean it's like yeah yeah i think it'll catch on the more that i put up you know or we say call the show like i've been trying to make a habit of that more because <laughs> but anyway the show is awesome. I'm I'm grateful to be a part of it. So you were in you were in four years of relapse mode. Obviously, uh, you found the perfect people that would yeah. help you sustain this this uh, habit. And and yeah, yeah. And you know what? It doesn't mean that in any way that it was. Um, you know, again, I just I, I acted as if you know I was young. Um, you know fairly, you know, fairly attractive. And it just kind of people, people want to save other people, whether they're addicts or not, people want to save other people. Um, you know, there were a, a couple of guys that like I'd get, you know, caught up with and, and we'd use together and stuff. And that was fine. And that was safe for me, um, you know, to, to kind of transition into other things, you know, the, I don't, um, 
you know, it scares, it scares the hell out of me when I think of the crazy situations that I put myself in um, within those four years and how I did not end up like dead, you know, brutally beaten or like, you know, severely sexually assaulted um, right. in that time, you know, especially being, you know, living, living in Chicago, um, like I said, you know, we don't have the nicest neighborhoods and what a young girl like me was doing there by myself is, is just crazy to look at. But and you adapted, you know, and, and you get that. You, you, you do. learn how to handle those fucking people and you learn how to handle yourself in a way that comes across like you don't fuck around, like don't touch me, you know. You, and I, it's what we do, you know. No matter where we go, we're always going to have that ability to adapt to our surroundings, right? Yeah. And, you know, thrive, and thrive in it, whatever <laughs> that is. Yeah. And, you know, thinking like, the, you know, the, the white girl from the suburbs, it's kind of like, you know, I'd show up like in things, you know, certain, like, like you said, tough, like gangster, don't mess with me. And they didn't, you know. And, um, but I mean, there's so many situations where it's like looking back, where it's like, my God. And how, what was I thinking and how did I get out of that safely? And, you know, to, to, put, to put it in, so, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, like, what did happen, like, um, that brought this four-year relapse to a screeching halt? Like, what woke you? Um, you know, to a screeching halt in between, there was a lot of, there uh, out of those four years, about two of it was in and out of being incarcerated. Um, so there was, call it like the one fateful day. And, you know, I wasn't... There was nothing new about going to jail for me. I've been to the, it would have been, uh, on this one, it would have been my third stint in the penitentiary. And, um, and I had gotten pulled over one night. I was driving my mom's car. I was in the suburbs, uh, open alcohol, blackout drunk, and, you know, drugs on my person. Um, and I'd gotten pulled over for whatever reason. And, um, so they, t this was in, again in the suburbs though, and was taken into that County jail. And for whatever reason, um, you know, it's just one of those moments in life that you can't explain. It was just knowing that it had to stop. Mm -hmm. It just had to stop. And for some reason I felt safe and, and probably it was in a, maybe cause it was in a different jail or something. The surroundings were different. I just felt safe and just thinking right. this has got, this has got to stop. And um, my <laughs> parole officer came to see me. I think they're supposed to come see you like within 48 hours or something. My parole officer had come to, had came to see me and he puts this paper in front of my face. And it's this three page handwritten paper of like, basically like an intake form. But I had written out this massive thing of how I needed help of what was going on in my life, what I was feeling. I didn't know how to stop all of the drugs that I had done, you know, all this stuff from my childhood. And just basically this plea for help. The crazy thing was I have no recollection of writing this. Really? Um, yeah, I was in such a blackout drunk. Wow. And they had, I did not get a DUI on this. And that kind of ties in a little bit later. Um, the, the court program that I ended up going into, if you had a DUI, you were not eligible. And how I did not get a DUI on that night, I have absolutely no clue. Um, they probably waived they were, it. They probably waived it so that you could do the program because now, with especially this big recovery advocacy movement, this is just a guess, but it's my opinion. Uh, the recovery advocacy movement is nationwide, and it's really the, the big push is to get 
these communities and cities and states to lean towards rehabilitation instead of incarceration. The old way isn't working. And the more people do what we're doing and speak out, right, and we share our stories and we own our stories, then the more people know that recovery is possible and, it, and there is hope. And we, anybody can do this. Like, it's not like we're fucking awesome. I mean, we are awesome, but <laughs> you know, I mean, we are awesome. We're not though. that fucking awesome. Like, we just did what somebody else showed us how to do. You know, we didn't know how to do it. We needed help. You know, we had to get humble. So, I think a lot of places are really starting to catch on with the with that movement. You know, so they probably—that's my guess—is waved it in lieu of to give you a chance to learn some skills and to better your life, you know? Well, from, well, for me, I mean, this was almost 14 years ago. I, I literally had to fight to get treatment. Um, they did not want to give me treatment because of my criminal background. They felt that if I went into a place that wasn't like, you know, literally behind lock and key that I was just going to, I was considered a flight risk. Right. Um, and I had a I had a parole officer with IDOC who who believed in me and and he wanted me to get treatment. He had been with me for my other parole stints too, and he knew I was an addict. And he knew that me going back to the penitentiary was not the place for an addict. Um, and he said, "Well, you know, I've got to go through my supervisor, and then we have to go through the state, and then we still have to go through the county to get you this." But he said, "What you know, whatever, I I will fight for you." And um, and I literally sat in jail, in county jail, for six months fighting to get treatment, like trying to prove to these people I am worthy of drug rehabilitation. Yeah. And, you know, 14 years ago, it's like, that's, that's a sad state to be in, um, yeah. where you have to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to sit incarcerated than, than take some time and get freedom because I deserve treatment. Like, you know, how messed up is that? And I think, you know, we have, we, we are seeing that movement, um, you know, with the opioid crisis of what are we doing here? These people actually need treatment. They don't need jail. Right. Um, you know, back then it was, it was still trying to, you know, people obviously knew it. In my case, every story is different, but it was really proving to these people, like, I'm serious about this. If I'm willing to sit in a jail cell for t right. a 23 hour lockdown, <laughs> six months. I mean, that's, that's what I did. It was 23 hour lockdown, like sitting in there. Um, I, I, this is what I want. And it was, I think it was the first time in my life, even from, you know, being in the program and being in treatment before it was really the first time in my life again, that I felt this sense of peace. And I said to myself, I can do this. I don't care what comes in front of me. I am worthy of this. I am better. I am a human being. Um, I am capable of doing all these things. I never felt that in my life. And to find um, freedom in a jail cell and find worth and let go of a lot of things in a jail cell, that has nothing to do with treatment. You could call it God. You can call it, you know, the universe. You call it whatever you want. For me. That's, to me, that's a first, second, third step in your, by yourself in a jail cell. Because those steps are all about attitude and willingness, you know? Yeah, it, it was the first time looking at it and saying, you know, I always knew that drugs and alcohol were the problem. I always knew that. Um, but it's like, well, what about you? What are you willing to do about this? Right. When am I going to stop waiting for someone else, you know, my mom or the court system or this man or whoever else to say, 
Pacey, it's, it's okay. You're going to be worthy. And then truly internalizing that. It was like, I had to feel that and I had to believe that for myself. So it was sitting in that jail cell and building up knowledge of, of the program, building up, you know, myself and, you know, really starting to like dive into books and, and doing so, a lot of journaling exercises and stuff. What did that look like then? Did they have meetings in there and you were, you got a like, like a book and, and a sponsor in jail and started actually doing the work in there? Um, we had meetings. So, I mean, you'd have different, you'd have, uh, you know, 12 step meetings. They had, you know, kind of church groups. They had, they had a few different things that were going on. Um, you know, the biggest thing for me was I had a big book, you know, I, I had a big book and I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. Um, and I sat there and I studied this text that was written, you know, in, you know, 19, between 19, what it was published in 39. So we'll just say in 39, I, from reading that text, it was finding myself in there <clears throat> and connecting with these stories and, and the analogies that they used and saying that was me and truly believing that there was hope right. and, and, and almost, finding a fellowship in the book it right. is bizarre as it sounds like i, oh, I felt connected that's that's a lot from of the words. stories right that's a lot of personal stories in there a lot of different people's accounts and it, it doesn't sound weird at all to me you know um <clears throat> yeah so when when i when i got out of there it was they i ended up going into treatment um ended up going to a halfway house and I didn't have a license. So it was like, you know, walking to meetings all the time. And I've mentioned before, like structure, I, I needed that. Um, I could not, I felt like I could not go back to my mom's house um, because there was no structure there. And, right. and that was how it was my entire life. And uh, you know, the, the, I, I remember going to like a, a big book study meeting and, and here I'm like quoting the big book and blah, 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 blah. And, this guy who's I'm still friends with him, you know, had 10 plus years at the time. He, he will still say to me, like re meeting me for the first time and I'm going into this. He's like, who is this new girl? Like, where did she come from? You know, quote in the big book, because it was like, I had studied it so much and believed right. in it and believed in the words and, and found the hope. And, um, you know, my, my home group is still a big book study meeting and, and understanding that that doesn't change, but how do we interpret it and, and how do we express that to, to the still suffering yeah. alcoholic or addict? That's so cool though. I think that's a pretty unique um, scenario. Most people need to like go through the book with somebody else, you know, and kind of have them teach them or explain. And I'm sure, I'm sure when you got into the fellowship, you probably were like, blown away by a bunch of the shit that the big book thumpers told you because you, there's no way you could know like the history of AA and shit like that. Like these guys will talk about stories that happened with the characters that, you know, brought it to fruition. Like they knew them or some shit. And it's funny <laughs> to me, but you, you'd really connected on a deep level with the, with the text and with the, and you felt the power without even having the guide. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty rare, but I think it's beautiful and it's testament to your, your, uh, where your head was at too, because I feel like I kind of liken it to the Bible, right? Like <clears throat> I could have read the, read the Bible and it might as well have been in Spanish, but the Holy spirit had to like reveal it to me, you know, like right. make it understandable to me. Like I, I couldn't in my own understanding, understand what stuff was in there. But when I was ready to receive that gift, then, you know, like God made it, 
make sense to me type thing. And it's the same way with the big book. Like until you're ready to really get better, like you're really seeking a better life, you're done. You're yeah. Big. And you know, that, it, that what you're saying right now, that's kind of the, you know, the, I guess the, the paradox or like the frustrating things with someone that is suffering from addiction is that, and it almost seems like a cop out when you would say it to, you know, a family member of someone that's suffering. It's like, how can we help them? How can we help them? You and for someone that's in recovery to say like, they, they, they really have to want it. We can go to them, but we can't make them stop. Nope, right. And until seed. that actually, yeah, we just, we plant the seed and it's like how frustrating that is. And again, it, it almost does feel like a cop out. Like we can just plant the seed. But other than that, it's like until that clicks with them, until they find themselves, you know, in, in a book or, uh, you know, in, in a meeting and it just really clicks, like, it truly is out of our hands. And then having to explain to the family member or friend, like think of something that you've been suffering from. Think of like you wanting to control them. Like I can't make you give up your feeling about them. Right. Um, and it's, it, it, I do, I find it the frustrating thing. It's like, we know what to do for the most part when somebody does want it, we know how to interact with them. We know what to teach them. Um, we know where to refer them to whatever else, but until the, the addict gets to that point, it's almost like we can just plant the seed. Yeah. And after that, so, it's, it's out of our hands. Um, so you did this in the, in jail. And then when you got out, you, you dove in, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Dove in, um, you know, from IOP to meetings all the time. I'd have my set meetings. So did you get furloughed from jail to treatment? Yeah. So then I was just, I was just on probation, um, for my gosh, like three years, I think like still getting my sheet signed, you know, yeah. <laughs> like picking up like a three year chip and still getting my sheet signed. Wow. Um, <laughs> people are like, my, people are like, what did this woman do? Like that she's still getting her sheet signed, you know, right. over. um, but you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. And, um, you know, I got over that and, and, you know, through, throughout the the years of the evolution of sobriety and really like what my message is today from where I was at to, you know, walking to meetings all the time or having to ask for help to, you know, dealing a lot with mental illness and a lot of those past childhood issues that I had and finding, you know, looking at it, um, you know, like step six and seven, step six and seven, um, I feel are like, the one, two, and three of drinking, but like six and seven are like that of my emotions and, and, and really digging into like six and seven of, I want to get rid of this decay that has been rotting inside of my body since I was a child. Like relieve me of these emotions. Like I, I don't want this, I don't want this crap anymore. I don't want to feel this way. And it's um, like, it's like ushering or inviting in uh, a higher power to come in and do for you what you could not do for yourself, you know? And that's a, yeah, it's, it's taking a turn from like, I need to change me, my behavior to now I need, I need a higher power. Like I need you to start taking an active role in my life now, please come on in. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. You know, and some of the things of like, I got sober when I was 21. So imagine, you know, the mindset of, of a 21 year old. It's like, yeah, you want it. You want to fit in still. I wanted to fit in still. Right. Um, but I knew that if I was hanging around with some of these other 
people my age, that could potentially lead to a relapse. So I hung, I hung around with a lot of the older people. My desire to stay sober was greater than my desire to fit in. Hell right? yeah. Hell yeah. Um, and, and remembering that, uh, you know, getting sober at the legal drinking age and looking around and being <laughs> that, you know, thinking, you know, thinking of my story of like that child that always just wanted to fit in. Right. But having that intellectual thing of, you know what, if I hang out with them, that could lead to a relapse. I better hang out with some of these old timers and see what they can teach me. That's really good advice. And I give it to newcomers all the time. But okay, so let's get into, um, you know, what, what kind of things have you been doing uh, as far as in your recovery? I know I really want to get into this backpacking thing. And I want to mm -hmm. hear, and I want to hear about like, you know, how, how do you carry the message? Um, you know, so in the way that I carry the message, I think my simple message, uh, you know, it, it is from, you know, stuff of, of the big book and, and 12 step programs. Mine is really of love and empathy and understanding coming from shame and every, that everyone is different and everyone has these different paths and not having, you know, the, the, the parental guidance or the parental love of someone saying like, you are capable, you can do this, you can do whatever you want. Um, understand, understanding like the limiting beliefs that we have of, of being a, a victim of certain things, you know, not necessarily something tragic, but just emotional stuff. So throughout my, my sobriety, that's pretty much been my message is one of absolute understanding and empathy of where someone is coming from. And you know, I, I guess I can say that some of the years were just kind of like mon mundane sobriety, you know, I got sober, did the deal, worked a job, got married, got divorced, blah, 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 hung out, all of this stuff. Um, and I was with, you'd mentioned the backpacking, I was with a, a company for 10 years. And in that time, it was still, um, you know, man, I want to do something else, but I've got this criminal background, and I have no other skills. And you know, I never finished my degree. I went back to college and, and then just never finished the degree. You know, what, you know, what am I going to bring? What, I, I, didn't, I still didn't know myself in a way. You know, I was just kind of going through life and, and doing what was in front of me. Right. And um, so through my divorce was actually a turning point in my life. And realizing, fully realizing it about 10 years sober, who I was and how strong I was um, through going through anger and then learning to, you know, show up at work and being like, everything's, everything is good. Like I am emotionally okay. And, and really opening up, it was through my divorce. I truly learned how to become vulnerable and talk to people in meetings really about what I was going through and opening up. And it wasn't necessarily because I thought I was going to drink again. It was just this thing of, I, I don't know what to do. This is a life situation and I need help in this life situation right yeah. here. Please you have someone needs you, you mm -hmm. have needs and, and I'm sure if you're anything like me and you kind of alluded to it earlier, it's like you're in this marriage. So you maybe had some kind of like part of you that felt obligated to lean solely on him and, or, or depend solely on him to meet those emotional needs that, right. you know, life, the quality of life gets so much better when you're, those emotional needs are being met by a community of people. Like, I mean, I don't know if you've heard the term, it takes a village, but it takes a village to recover. It's not, I can't recover. 
by myself. I need a village and I need a higher power, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. It, it was, you know, because I hadn't suffered anything really, you know, great after, you know, getting sober. It was the first time in some years I really had to reach out and ask for help again, right? And right. in a different life situation. And what that did, though, is it opened me up to, you know, really being open and, uh, and open and honest and vulnerable again, the same way that I was in the first couple of years of sobriety. But what that really did for me is it changed the it changed the trajectory of my life because I started feeling 100% empowered. Again, this is 10 years sober. And I found that feeling that it, or the, you know, where it talks about like, um, and you know, within nine step promises, like I truly started to get that in my life because I was hitting way more meetings than I had in a long time. I was opening up way more than I had before I was going out, I was doing all these kind of like scary things, Um, you know, just doing whatever I wanted to do and learning to do it by myself. Um, My days off were different than other people. My days off were during the week. So it was like, I'd go on tours, I'd go, you know, whether it was just doing, you know, to like meetups by myself and learning to truly be comfortable in my own skin. And what that did was, uh, in short, I had met someone on on a tour and i had asked him to take a picture of me in front of something and we ended up just hitting it off and he was traveling the united states in a van for three months on a visa and he was um iranian scottish which is a very strange mix (laughs) and um and it fascinated me this whole idea of travel just fascinated me and at that at that time i had friends that were doing just you know nice like vacations and stuff and and having issues with money, uh, a scarcity mindset with money, I had just saved and saved and saved throughout my sobriety. Um, wow. And at the time, I was I, I had waited tables for years, saved money, um, and and then the management position, the corporate management position that I had, I was making way better coin and just saved money, right? But so meeting this man, um, I was like my God, I, I want to do that. I want to do that. And we had just kind of kept in, in contact, you know, after he had left, you know, just shooting messages, but I started looking into traveling and, and I knew I wanted to leave that job. But again, having the limiting beliefs of I'm, I'm not good enough for anything else. What do I do? And it wasn't that my job was horrible. I worked for a phenomenal company, again, made great money, great, um, you know, cultural work environment. And I felt, um, I felt ungrateful to leave it. But at the same time, deep in my gut, I knew I wanted something else. So there were just a lot of things going on. And then one day I was at the gym. The gym does great things for people. Um, I'd gotten done with my workout and I remember walking into the locker room and there's a mirror right there. And I looked and I like caught my own eye in the mirror and I said, I'm going to do it. And I started making a plan to quit my job and, and backpack the world. So for six months, I decided to stay with my job for six months, um, you know, train other people below me and, and everything else during the busy months. And, uh, and, I, and I was being groomed in a way for a higher up, like more cushy corporate position too. Um, and I somewhat knew that. And it was strangely enough on, on the day that I was going to give my two week notice, they were coming to me to tell me that I was being promoted again. Um, and it wasn't going to change it. I just knew I, I wanted something different. 
And all I could tell myself, and this is, I think this is probably one of the greatest messages is that the months leading up to this, I would go into meetings and say, I'm doing this and doing this and doing this. I am sober. As long as I'm sober, I can do anything I want. Hell right? yeah. That means that the only thing holding me back is my belief system about myself and my capabilities. But as oh. long as I'm sober and I'm you know, above ground, I've got a chance. And I think so many you know, people in recovery just will simply say, oh, I'm grateful for today. I'm grateful because I got this job. I'm grateful for my relationship. I'm grateful for this. It's like my thing was, again, I felt ungrateful because I knew that job was wonderful. I knew I was living a great life. And somewhere deep inside, it was that shame came back and said, no, Casey, you can't have more right. because that means that you're ungrateful. And it's bullshit, right? It's bullshit. Um, because I have been given a gift of life and I have been given a gift of sobriety um, that I'm able to read that we live in this country here. Like we have been given so many things and so many opportunities. And there's that shame that comes in and says, you're ungrateful. Just enjoy what you have. It's like, right. no, sit down for a little bit, explore new avenues in life, find out who you are and like think big and play big. What do you want to do? What message do you really want to carry? Do I want to tell a newcomer, hey, you know what? You get sober, you work a job, you make some coin, you get married, you pop out a couple babies, life is great. Like that's not the message of recovery that I want to carry. The right. message of recovery tells me that, you know what? You can strap a 20-pound backpack on, have a one-way ticket to Portugal, two nights booked in a hostel, and you don't know what the fuck is going to happen. But as long as you're sober, you will make a plan and it is going to be okay. Yeah. Right? Like that's the message I want to carry. That's awesome. You know, the, the message I want to carry is like, you have a voice. You, for me, like I am not artistically inclined when it comes to like painting, uh, you know, song lyrics, you know, it's eloquent dancing. Like, it's not my area of expertise, right? My message of that is my story, my belief system about myself, using to, uh, learning to use my words, like that is my art right there. My life, our lives, like that is our, that is our art. Like what do you want to paint on the canvas? How do you want to inspire other people? I, I don't, and it's not, a, it's, I, I, I don't mean to sound like condescending, when I say you're like, not, dude, this is like <laughs> poetic. This is like poetic. Come on. You know, it's, it, it's, beautiful. I, it's not, I, I don't want to sound condescending when it's like to anyone that's just living that life, but you know what, go out there and think big. Like I came from, you know, being on the South, South side of Chicago with guns to my head, right. being a gun, a gun to my head. <laughs> Why am I going to be scared to go and apply for a new job? Right. Right. Why am I going to be scared to fill out a resume? Well, well, what do too, I really have to fear? I would say too that, you know, when like people pop out some kids, then, you know, your higher powers purpose for your life is probably to do the best job you can raising them kids. Right. But if you have it, if you don't have kids and you're recently divorced and you're, you know, you, you keep having this gnawing sensation, this, this uh, feeling inside of you that you want, you're like longing to try to do this thing. I mean, that's a higher power thing to me. You know, that's so, like, you know, my sponsor tells me when, when that stuff happens, he's like, put it up to a litmus test 
And if it passes the litmus test, then you should do it, you know, because why do you, you know, it's on your heart for a reason. So I think it's beautiful message. I think to know that no matter what things are going to be okay. Right? Like I can take, I can take a chance. I can take a risk. There's no reward without risk. And I have not, came as far as I have in my recovery by being scared to step through fear and do something that's put in front of me or that was on my heart that sounded too big or too hard. I mean, I've been able to do some amazing things in my short recovery so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next, you know, and that's so, so don't, I, I don't think that anybody out there is going to find what you just said in any way, shape or form condescending. That was like, one of them like motivational speeches when you were talking, it was like, I'm just getting like goosebumps and I'm like, yeah, you know, ready to rock. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, what I do now is, um, you know, going, uh, you know, I'll go into treatment centers and, and give kind of like a, a workshop on this and starting off with asking the women, it's like, you know, what are you most of the time? It's just, I try to stick with women's facilities, but like, you know, what are you grateful for today? right? You can keep it as simple or as, you know, as big as, as you want to. Um, and then asking them, like, I want you ladies to think big in this. What, what are your goals? What are your ambitions? And then also prefacing it with like, I also understand that you're just trying to stay sober one day at a time right now. You right. can't think about opening up a business, but if you could do anything you want, whether that's, you know, an example, like it's like, you know, you want to reinvent the Barbie doll, you put that down right? Whatever it is, but think big. Right. And then how, and then how do we work around that? So the message that I like to share with people that are early in recovery is that you can do anything you want. Maybe at the beginning, we just need to take that first year to do this, but don't get caught in the rut like I did of 10 years of sobriety. And again, I had 10 wonderful, wonderful years. I've just taken it to the next level. Right. Right. And and, and there's no them- saying like the way that you handled this situation and, and did it, I mean, that door is probably wide open for you if you ever want to go back. You know, people respect that and you gave it, you know, you left them in a way that they were okay and they were set up for success. You didn't like fuck them over. No. You just had to follow your heart, you know. I think I wanted to share this with you and I was thinking of this last night. I was praying and I thought, because this tripped me out, right? Remember, this was every morning on my Facebook, I do like a daily post. My first morning post is like a daily inspiration kind of thing. And I really try to be thoughtful in it. And, you know, I'm trying to spread the message and, and what I've learned. And so it really ties into your whole ideal, your, your, your big, you know, message that you give about taking risks and, and not being scared, right? So it was a, it was a quote. It was like a meme uh, with a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings. Fame. Yeah. Uh, and it says still round the corner, there may wait a new road or a secret gate. And I, for the caption, I just put good morning, live in this moment and be ready to take on new challenges. Life's rewards are so often a result of taking a calculated risk. So live life on purpose with courage and compassion. We have no idea what God's plan is for us. I can't wait to see what happens with like hearty eyes after, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then 
that was at like 11 o'clock. And then, at, you know, three or four, Charles is like, maybe you want to fly solo on this one. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Did he just say that? <laughs> yeah. And then I read your thing, the full one, because I had a little blurb of your little bio, but he sent me the full thing. And I was just like, wow, man, that's so weird. Like, like I just felt like it, in that moment, like me and you were like kind of simpatico on where we're at and like what we want to like convey to people in the way that we carry our message to others. And so I was like, I got to share that with her. Cause I thought maybe you'd think that was pretty cool. It was kind of a trip to me. <laughs> no. And, and like looking at that too, and like thinking, you know, opening up those doors and, you know, manifesting what you want in your life. And I also look at it too. And I, I believe a lot of other people that are in our position, look at it. It's like, this isn't just for us, but the more that we recover out loud and do these really adventurous things um, that is not only inspiring to other people that are still suffering or people that are newer in sobriety, but it's also inspiring to this, you know, the, to relieve the stigma, right? If we can show up to, to society and say, Hey, you know what? We don't just kind of get sober and like live this life. Like look at all this stuff that we're doing. We are just as capable. We don't live our lives in a meeting. We don't, you know, look at all, look at what we can do. Right. How does that change the stigma of saying this person isn't just an addict? They're not just a junkie. They're not just whatever. Like they are productive, flourishing members of society. We want more of those. Like let's break down the stigma of, you know, addiction, mental health. Um, yeah. And I think that's so important of this, this whole movement of recovering out loud and really thinking and playing big. It's not just beneficial for us in our little tribe, but right. it's showing the rest of the world, like we are deserving of treatment. We are deserving of empathy. We are deserving of understanding yep. because if we don't have that, look at all the great things that are lost. Right. Um, you know, that, that for me has been huge. The, the last maybe two years of how do I show up to the rest of the world, not for myself and not for the still suffering person, right. but I want the rest of society to view me, not just as an addict, but with a person that's done a lot of crazy cool things in their life, not crazy oh, yeah. stupid things in their life. Right. Um, so, so you know, like, Oh, uh, if you had some more, go for it. But I, you, you know, I was going to, I was going to say like when I was traveling and, and backpacking, there was a, there was a big shift in my perspective. I will say I've always I've had this thing against God of, you know, the Catholic upbringing pretty much is right. always atheist agnostic. And what I found from being on my own, being in countries, there were plenty of places that I was in the Middle East for a little bit, um, living with the family there. And, you know, there's no meetings or sometimes I'd find a meeting and it wasn't in English, even though it was listed as um, being, being in countries where the language isn't spoken, right? So really isolating um, in that sense and understanding that it was a massive change for me from like having a, a fellowship, having a title, having a paycheck to being like, Oh my gosh, who am I? What am I? It and, makes you feel small, right? Like, Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. It makes you feel so small. And <laughs> it, it kind of led to like a little bit of depression, but you know what that did for me was I, I found a tribe of people. I stayed put for a little bit in a place, found a tribe of people. That's when it like, I found out about like, coaching and got into, you know, all of these different spiritual workshops and, and like 
yoga and God. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm really praying. I don't think I've done this since the beginning of sobriety because I had to. And it was like finding myself all over again and how, and I'm not saying that people need to like travel the world solo to do this, but really learning and taking those times, whether it's in the morning, whether it's at night, whether it's in the middle of the day, whenever it might be to sit with yourself for five minutes and feel alone, feel isolated, feel, you know, nobody can really see it, but you know, like the little inch, like feel small (laughs) for a second and listen to your thoughts. Like that's kind of just what meditation is. It's not, you know, this full Zen thing. It's just sitting with yourself for five or 10 minutes and feeling alone and, you know, kind of questioning things and letting the thoughts flow. You, You know, yeah, you don't have to be on the other side of the world mm-hmm. to get that and leave everything, but attempt to do it today and, and really start to find yourself and listen to those thoughts and discover right. who you are. And, um, well, I think too, that, it, you know, you could say that people should get out there and try different things because there's so many different ways to recover. You got Taoist, uh, you know, Tao Te Ching workshops, you got, you got mindfulness and meditation meetings, you got the yoga meetings, you got uh, all these different kinds, you got like silent retreats where you like don't speak for like a whole weekend and you got, they they got 10 day ones like that. (laughs) You got all this crazy shit out there, man. And the thing about recovery is like, I can sit and wax poetic about mine, but my journey and your journey are separate journeys. And and what's going to work for me may not work for you. So like people need to be open-minded and that's probably why that's one of the three parts of the how of recovery, you know, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness. We have to be open-minded and we have to be willing to try new things. Um, And you will discover these things. Like you said, you weren't expecting to be like blown the fuck away when you tried those workshops and you met those people and yet here you are and you found something that was so valuable to you, you know, and, and your recovery and your spirituality. It's awesome. So yeah, like, and, you know, just like you sorry, go ahead. say, just like you said, you know, try, try new things, be open-minded. Like if you're wondering who you are and, and what you like and, Oh, I don't know myself. Um, you know, I was, Go go bowling. Go bowling by yourself. Go take a walking tour by yourself. Go walk down the street by yourself. You know, read a book by yourself. Try different things. You can't, you know, contempt prior to investigation, right? Right. Um, you can't find yourself without going within, right? Yeah, you can't find yourself unless you try different things. You know, life in, is trial and error. Or somebody's saying, I don't know what my passion is, or I don't know how to, you know, or, it, you know, to put it like in, in 12 steps, like, I don't know how to help, you know, the, the still suffering addict. Yeah. Well, you don't know unless, you don't know unless you try and you go on a 12 step call or you yeah. talk to a newcomer at a meeting. You don't know unless you try different You things. have to seek it. It's not going to fall. Right. It's going <laughs> to seek you. You have to find your passion. You have to get out there and try new things and do things that, that people tell you work. And then one of those things is going to light a fire in your ass that's just going to burn bright and you're going to know, you're going to know this is it, man. And that's an awesome feeling to find a passion and a purpose in your life and your recovery. 
Yeah, and it's it's un, it's uncomfortable, right? Trying oh, new things is is uncomfortable. And we, you know, let's you know, we shouldn't sit here and be like, oh, just try it. It's gonna be it's gonna be wonderful. Like, no, <laughs> it's 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 going to be really it, fucking I uncomfortable. Said, I said, when you find it, I right? Yeah, when, when you gonna... find it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's trial and error. It's going to be uncomfortable, mm. and that's okay to be uncomfortable because, like, know that through the uncomfortability, like we are growing and yeah. even just saying, you know what? I tried it. I discovered that it was way too uncomfortable for me and I didn't like it or give it a couple of days and say, you know what? It really wasn't that bad. Maybe I'll try it again. Well, I would um, even argue, I would even argue that it's vital. Like it is vital that you get uncomfortable. If you're not getting uncomfortable, you're not doing this right. It's a simple, not easy program, you know? Um, so right. just so the listeners know, what's your sobriety date? Uh, exactly like I think you said it was AA, but you know, your sobriety date, what's your methodology that you used to recover or, or plural if it was multiples? So people know how long you've been clean. Uh, yeah, so my sobriety date is September 17th of 2005. Um, my primary, my primary like method is through AA 12 steps. Um, and then, you know, now I have like my own recovery coach where he does stuff that's like outside the 12 steps. It's more like, you know, business, um, you, you yeah, are primarily a recovery was, coach, you know, meetings. You are, uh, I do, coach? I do coach. Yeah, I do coaching myself. So I'm like life transitional coaching, but my clients, uh, it's a focus of people that were like me, basically, you know, years of sobriety who want to make a big change. So, yeah. you know, my, my niche is, you know, recovery, uh, is recovery based. So it's either is, it, through, is it a website or is it like an office? Um, no, yeah. Web, yeah. Website. And then okay. the clients, we just do either like, you know, Skype calls or just phone calls and, um, you know, making your commitments every week. And so you're no stranger to doing this right here. Like, no, <laughs> video no. Uh, um, yeah, definitely going to have to have you send us the information about any of the things that you're involved with that you, you know, you know, the resources, right. For the recovery community at large. So Get us that info and we'll put it in the show notes on this episode when we publish it so that people can contact you or, you know, look into any services that you might offer. Um, is So what you want to lay out for us what what exactly all you're doing today and, and what uh, you have to offer the recovery community if they want to reach you or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so for me, like, you know, personally on there, I do, uh, you know, motivational speaking, like I said said, um, you know, what I'm trying to do more right now is get into corporate offices and talk about addiction and mental health. Um, oh, yeah. So there's that I go into treatment facilities, tell my story. And then there's a, a model that I like to use. Uh, it's barriers, beliefs, behaviors, and getting with these clients or, you know, again, mostly women to like really think big. And, and it goes into the coaching, what are your limiting beliefs? What are the actual, you know, the red tape barriers, right? So there's some of those physical barriers, but then looking at the belief system and then what's the output. So it's, it's a very simple model, but it's, you know, one that I use in my coaching um, with clients too, but bringing that into the treatment facilities and getting these, you know, these people in early, early recovery to like start seeing what this stuff is here yeah. and what's holding us back. And, and most of the time it's, you know, we want to point the finger. And the reason why I use that one, it's, 
barriers starting out, we want to point the finger at everyone else. Well, I can't get my kids back because blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, that's just part of it. Right. But how, how do we overcome that? So we, in, in that with my treatment facilitation, really start like deducing almost and, and finding ways to get what you want. You want to start a business? You tell me that you want to start a business. I'm going to show you the simple ways to start doing that. Um, and yeah, that can be overwhelming when someone is sitting in a 28-day treatment. I want them to realize it is possible. It may right. not be the day that you leave treatment, but it is possible. And taking them through those that little simple model very quickly to like, man, when I leave here, I've got potential. I have this... I have this little structure that shows me what I can do. Um, and then, you know, talking to them about finding resources. And yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing with uh, personal uh, life coaching clients as well. You know, what is holding us back? Is it something from childhood that we can work on for a couple of weeks? What are your end goals? You know, and, and it's just regular life coaching. But again, my clients are in, um, you know, recovery, whether it's addiction, mental health, trauma. Yeah. And recovery is life. It's not. Yeah. yeah. Recovery in general. Um, because I do feel that from our past of addiction or traumas that we have overcome so much. And I mentioned a little bit earlier, why are we so scared to do these other things? Why was I so scared to leave that job when I've overcome so much in my life? I needed to be coached through those things. Um, you know, I needed to be coached when I got home too. And I feel like as, you know, it's not necessarily my sponsor's, you know, my sponsor is not a coach nor a therapist. She she specializes in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and is a great friend. That's an awesome message though, you know, that you can, you can cultivate these things in yourself. And it's, I think it speaks to the fact that this is a process and it's a, it's not a one and done deal and, and recovery isn't just about working the steps. It's holistic. And, and it's, I always tell people like, if you just can focus on you, like the steps are the catalyst, right? Like if you can just focus on you and do that work, everything else is going to change because you change and when you change, everything else change. And people are like, you know, they're so stuck in the distractions and they, they make excuses for not doing that work. And it's like, it's really frustrating. I've gotten to a point now where I don't own that shit. That's not, you know, I did what I could. Um, but man, you're amazing. I, I super stoked that we were able to do this and, uh, you know, we got to get closing it up here, but I really want to give you an opportunity to throw in, any, any like parting thoughts that you might want to share. And then also if you could think of like, I think Charlie likes to say one, one book that you, you know, if you could pick one like greatest piece of literature that like blew your mind that you think people should read uh, in there too. At the end. Oh man. I for the book. There's quite a few. Um, you know, I, I guess I'll plug, I'll plug this book and it's not necessarily recovery related, but it got me thinking about the strange things that happen in life. Um, it's called many minds, many masters. And, um, who's that? By? Kinda, oh man. I don't even remember. We'll, um, we'll find out. We'll find out. 
Yeah, it's called Many Lies, Many Masters. And it just kind of talks about like weird things of almost reincarnation and stuff in life that you can't explain. And a lot of times I don't like to read books like that because you can't explain it. I'm like, this is just, it's, it's bullshit. Right. But for some reason, this book really got me. And I remember reading it in jail and it got me to think like, I don't know everything. And there are things in life that you cannot explain. Mm -hmm. Just roll with it, right? Just yeah. roll with it. And I think that's why that book touched me so much. It made me realize I am so small and there's so little that I know, but there's so much that I can learn and there will always be the unknown, right? Yes, yes. So I, I'll, I'll awesome plug message. that one. It's, it's called Many it's, Minds? It's an easy, it's, like Minds? Yeah, Many Minds. Yeah, like Minds. Okay, I thought you said yeah, Lies. Many Minds, Many yeah, Many Minds, Many Masters. Awesome. We will definitely include that in the show notes as well. I don't know if that one's been suggested, um, which is always a, a treat when, you know, cause a lot, we get a lot that people say the same books and it's awesome, you know, that they're widespread and really well known, but I love it when we get new ones. And I wish that I could just like hook up like in that movie, the matrix and like download shit in my head. Cause I got to <laughs> right? read and learn about them. Like, why can't I just like do a super download in my head? <laughs> But yeah, anyway, I, again, thanks so much. Uh, you, you've been a treat. It's been an awesome experience going through your story. And I just, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for being on here. Yeah. Thank you for having me as your first uh, yes. podcast here. This is awesome. I, I think uh, Charlie will, he'll have you do more after this, to be honest. I'd just say expect that. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I, like I told him, I'm, I'm willing and, and, and I know it's God's will, not mine. So this stuff doesn't just happen for no reason. And it's up to me to just have the balls to do it, right? Like, right. have the courage to give it a try. So I'm giving it a try. And, and you made it really easy. You made it feel really easy. And I related a lot to your story. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.